the cleanest way because it avoids that sort of stamp duty issue, but it becomes unfortunately more complicated. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 313 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When and how would you build on land you don't own? Three scenarios come to mind. Number one, a so-called joint venture agreement between mum and dad and a property developer where mum and dad retain ownership of the land until the whole thing gets sold. Number two, where the SMSF owns the land and another entity develops it. And number three, where you have different entities within a development business and one entity owns the land while a service entity does the building. Let's ask Damien Lehman of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney how this works. If you're a property developer, you're in the business of developing property, building on it and then selling it to third party people who want to you know, buy a house or whatever on the land. And what often will happen is a developer will scout out land that they're interested in. And there might be a place where you know someone's already already has their house or they have a commercial building or that sort of thing. And what the developer could do is say, I like your land, I want to buy it, buy the land, pay the stamp duty, then subdivide, develop, and then sell it to people. But what developers tend to do is they don't buy the land in the first case because they don't want to pay the stamp duty. So what they'll do instead is enter into an agreement with the owner of the land to secure their cooperation to allow them to develop and subdivide whatever they're going to do on the land and then share the profits in, in some way they've agreed. So we're really, and that's a situation where the developer is, is agreeing to do stuff on someone else's land that are, the landowner agrees to it for a cut of the profits, essentially. And that is often characterizes what they call a joint venture arrangement, which is not quite a partnership or, or sort of a formal business, but it's two people going in for a common pursuit to split profits. And that arrangement is commonly done still today with property developers. And it's the cleanest way because it avoids that sort of stamp duty issue, but it becomes unfortunately more complicated because I know Victoria, at least, they have a special rule now that talks about if there's an acquisition of an economic entitlement, we're going to deem it's something they've got to pay stamp duty on. And what I mean by that is Victoria now says, if you're a developer who enters a joint venture agreement with someone else, with a landowner, we're going to treat you as acquiring sort of whatever proportion of the land through that process, through entering the agreement and make you pay stamp duty on the agreement. That basically means now that joint venture arrangements in Victoria are off the table. Pretty much. Uh, I looked at it. I think there's a couple sort of ways uh, to deal with it. Also, there's, I think it's a pretty high threshold. It might be a million or $2 million land value. So, which, I mean, most developments will be that, I suppose. But Yes, that that is very easy to exceed. Because you're usually not talking about a tiny block, you're usually talking about a larger block. So in most areas, 
within capital cities in Australia, you would blow that out of the water straight away. Yes, that's right. And I mean, other states might have that rule too. I'm not too familiar, but I know it came in Victoria, I think 2019. If instead you had a situation where a self-managed super fund owned land or property and you wanted to develop that land, the land owned by your super fund, that usually will not work because any assets held by a super fund, you're not allowed to improve them, generally speaking, because that sort of is an indirect way of giving a contribution to your super fund that you're not really allowed to do. I think generally there's, there's a rule that says you can't do it at all. And separately from that, you're always limited to your, the contribution caps every year for what you do. And I think that even extends quite broadly to, you know, can you do work Personally, can you do work on a super funds, on your super funds property? You know, can you go in there and redo the kitchen yourself? That is seen as a contribution to your super as well because you're giving free labor. So that's quite a dicey area. There's all sorts of rules about that. I would think that you generally wouldn't would just not be able to develop land owned by your by your super fund. I don't think that'll be allowed. Good. So the second option where the SMS owns the land is off the table. And then the third option is coming back to this development, which we covered in the first case. But in the first case, the land was owned by a third party. But what about if you have two different entities and one entity owns the land and then the other entity builds the building on it? That would be fine, wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be fine. And that's what's commonly done. Whether, whether the entities are related or not, it's the same. It's really the same as the first case. Let's say company number two, that's the one that wants to develop things and company one's the landowner. It enters a joint venture agreement the same way or you could call it a developer agreement or these things are just names. It doesn't really matter what you call them necessarily. Again, and it's just a normal like contract law situation where the two parties, They negotiate what they think is an appropriate agreement to sign up, who's getting what money, who's paying what expenses, and then ultimately the property is sold from company one, and company one gives a split of, of the sale proceeds or the profits there to company number two in exchange for the development work that they arranged. And you can even have a third company, which is the building company, for example, does the actual construction. So, Mum and dad own the land and they enter a joint venture arrangement with a developer and then the apartment block gets built and in the end it all gets solved. I think that is quite common. But do you also see it often that a developer has different companies and so then one company or one entity, let's could also be a trust, owns the land and then another company actually develops this? Do you often see that? Yes. And why would they structure it like that? My sense is generally when businesses are doing this sort of thing, you, you want to keep each project in a separate company just to quarantine them from each other. So any liability stays in each company and doesn't overflow into other developments you might be doing. Yeah, so you would have a separate entity for each development project. That's right. And after the development is done, you just wind that company up. And in this case, we're breaking the sort of rule of thumb of don't own land in a company because they're running a business of property development and they're paying tax on revenue account anyway. So the, the benefit of putting it in a trust, putting the land in a trust to get the CGT discount, that benefit's lost anyway. So you would set up a company that owns 
each project, land project. But that's actually a very interesting question. If the company only runs this one project, would it still be on revenue and not on capital? Or do you really assess this based on the ultimate owner? And the ultimate owner has many different entities, each runs a separate project, hence all of them are on revenue account? Or do you look for this decision, whether revenue or capital, do you only look at the actual entity? So it is an interesting question. The analysis will go to the taxpayer individually. So it'll look at the single project company, but it goes to the intention of that taxpayer. And the intention bit is where we get to pull in the broader picture of you're a subsidiary of another head company that's doing many different developments, all that sort of thing. If you do one project and you plan on doing a second one, you're probably already on revenue account just for that first project. And uh, that reminds me of an interesting case. So there's the Whitford's Beach case, which I think was in the 70s or something, where there were these three old fellows who liked to fish. And they lived uh, in a place near Perth and Whitford's Beach was the place they liked to go fishing. And so for some reason, they wanted to buy this part of the beach so that I guess they could just fish in it whenever they liked. And again, for some reason, they bought it in a company and uh, a company called Whitford's, Whitford's Beach, I think. And they bought it just so they could fish there. So that's a capital asset for them. Obviously, they're not running a business of selling tickets to fish or anything like that. So it clearly was a capital asset there. And then later on, this is all still pre-CGT. So later on in, say, 1981, they sold the shares in the company to a property developer. And then the property developer had now planned to start building on that beachfront area. It was then a question, right? Because when because Whitford's Beach, was, which was a company, it acquired the land originally with the intention just for a, well, what, a, a capital use, let's say. But clearly now it's owned by other humans and those other humans have a different intention. And so that went to, to the high court there and the court decided, no, now your intention has changed and now you're in the revenue business. And so any sale you make of the land will be taxed on a revenue basis as income tax instead of CGT or capital gains, which was relevant then because there was no CGT actually. So if it was a capital asset that was sold, there'd be no tax. But so that sort of established this whole income versus capital distinction based on intention. And there's a, there's several of these cases which kind of come down to similar, you know, how do we define one's intention? So for the intention, you look to the ultimate owner. So if the ultimate owner runs many different projects, although just the one project is already done to make a profit, it's not to hold the asset, it's to create the development and then sell it. Hence, even if it's just one project, it's already on income, correct? That's right. Yeah, definitely. Welcome back. So at least three ways to build on land you don't own. Number one, joint venture agreements. But if you're in Victoria, make sure you find a legal way around the new rules that slam stamp duty onto joint venture agreements. Number two, building on land held by an SMSF is tricky. But please have a listen to episode 280 with Bryce Figo of DBA Lawyers in Melbourne, where he speaks about property development within an SMSF. And then number three, you can have one entity holding the land 
while a service entity does the building. That seems to be very common practice and not a big deal. The next episode is episode 314 and apologies, I wish I was more organized. I don't know yet what the topic will be. But either way, until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>